Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know him. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is the love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he, as he, is, as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. The word of the Lord. <clears throat> one, of the, uh, one of the shows that my boys love to watch, and I love to watch it too, is a show called The Hunt. And it's, it's, a, it's one of the BBC David Attenborough nature shows, like Planet Earth and Blue Planet. You're familiar with these shows? There's one called The Hunt. It's very exciting. It's all about predators, and predators are very popular in my house. There are lots of predators when you have little boys around. Um, the Hunt is very interesting because, because you know, it doesn't matter what uh, animal... Uh, David Attenborough is talking about. It could be polar bears or wolves or whales or jellyfish or spiders or African wild dogs or crocodiles. They're all doing the same thing. They're hunting. They're predators waiting basically to eat something. I learned yesterday that crocodiles... We were sitting, it was raining yesterday, so we were watching multiple episodes of The Hunt inside. I learned that crocodiles can sit in the mud for, how long do you think they could sit there for before they eat? A year. They could go a year without eating. What are they doing? They just literally sit there in the mud. But when the wildebeest come along, and they don't always, but when they do come along, do you know what happens? They spring to action. They sense the wildebeest coming, crawl down to the water, and all those crocodiles go down into the water. And they're ready for it. They're ready for the hunt. Why do they do that? It's part of their nature. It's built into what they do. Crocodiles eat wildebeest. It's just 
what they do. Um, things act according to their nature. When we expect those things not to act according to their nature, bad things happen. There's another show that I watched a while back. I think it was on Netflix. I, I don't think I've seen it lately. It was called Fatal Attractions. And it was about predators that people kept as pets. Well, it's called Fatal Attractions. What do you think? The whole show was about animals eating their owners. And people would be like, oh, but my rattlesnake loves me. Why would he bite me? And you watch the show and you can't help but say, it's a rattlesnake. That's why it's just doing what it knows to do. It, it, you know, monitor lizard's going to eat you. If you have it, a rattlesnake is going to bite you. That's what, that's what happens. They act according to their nature. Okay, things act according to, to, the, to their nature. We all act according to our nature. There's all kinds of philosophical rabbit trails we could uh, wander down when we're talking about things acting according to their nature. Today we're talking about God acting according to his nature in the letter of John. And as Luke has been uh, preaching, we've learned that John wants to give his hearers assurance of who they are in God and who they are in Christ. We can be certain of God's love. We can be certain that he will act according to his nature. Why why can we be certain of this? It's because, as we read in the passage, God is love. God is love. His loving activity flows from his very nature. And this has a real, a real application for us today as we, as we read. It's not just about us knowing that God is love, but he wants us to show his love as we communicate it to other people. We are to love one another, John says. And we can be assured that we live in God's love if we love one another. There, there's the sermon. It's all done. Luke asked me to keep it shorter today because of last time. Look, this passage is one of the more familiar passages in the Bible, isn't it? God is love. Even if you don't, aren't familiar with Scripture, even people who don't believe in God might, might quote this passage of Scripture, that God is love. Many of us sang it as a Sunday school song growing up. I thought many more of us did, and I started asking a couple people this morning if they sang this song in Sunday school, and they said, I don't know it, but our whole small group sang Beloved, let us love. Anyway, we all know this passage from Scripture, don't we? But unfortunately, what happens is uh, we often define love in ways that have nothing to do with love. We talk about God being a God of love, and then we define it in ways that are completely unscriptural. We, we tend to divorce the concept of love from our knowledge of God. But God and love, as we'll find, they're inseparable. Who God is, that he is love, and what he does, he loves us, he loves you, and he loves me. It should change who we are and what we do. God loves because he is love. We ought to love because God is love and we live in him. So I want to talk about the nature of God's love a little bit. God's, uh, I'm going to talk about three things. The nature of God's love, the gift of God's love. And uh, the people of God's love. But I'm going to be- begin with, with this, just this phrase, God is love. I, it's going to seem like I'm meandering a bit. Blame, blame John, not me. 
Luke changed the passage that I was supposed to preach on three different times because he couldn't figure out how to break up First John. And, I, <laughs> and guess what? Like, this is, this is what every preacher goes through when they're trying to preach through First John because John rolls around in circles. So we're going to do the same thing, okay? We're going to start with this, this, this concept, God is love. The idea of a loving God is simultaneously one of the most basic beliefs in everyone's understanding of who God is and one of the most controversial and misunderstood. Even those who do not believe in him will sometimes say that if he exists, he ought to be what? Loving, right? Ironically, atheists are some of the most devout believers that God ought to be a loving God. So much so that many look around at the suffering in the world and they conclude that God does not exist. Because why? A loving God would not allow this kind of suffering. Now, as far as Scripture is concerned, that kind of reasoning is just a smokescreen for the core issue, which is that people don't believe in God because they have rebellious hearts that are set against him at every point. But I want to point out that those people that believe that a God of love would not entertain a world of suffering, they're not entirely wrong on this point. They're not entirely wrong on this. We actually believe the same thing. Do you know what we call it? We call it heaven. We call it heaven. It's just, that, it's just that those people have divorced the love of God from the story of God's love. We believe that the same world ought to exist. We just believe it unfolds, that it's something that lies in wait for us. The promise of a future kingdom that God gives will be absolutely free from suffering. <laughs> but it will also, unfortunately, be free from atheists for uh, that matter. So nearly everyone believes that if God exists and he's in charge, he ought to be a God of love. It would be a terrifying thing if a God of hate were in charge, wouldn't it? He ought to be a God of love. Uh, what do people mean when they say that he's a God of love? Well, they mean that we have this concept called love, and it's exhibited in a number of ways. Even someone who's not a Christian might quote from 1 Corinthians 13, that love is what? Patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It's not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. In our culture, when we say that God is a God of love, we mean that love is a thing. It's a predetermined concept. And in order to be God, he must act according to this set of principles. This is why so many people are confused when they read the Bible and they read that God sent a flood to destroy the world he, and that God would command Abraham to sacrifice his son, that he struck down Egyptians with a plague, that he gave people very harsh rules and, and told them that if they don't follow them, they would die, that he would take someone like Job who loved him so much and afflict him and kill his whole family and then afflict him with sores and things. This kind of God does not seem to be very kind, does he? And when bad things happen in our world today, when we see famine and war and disease and rape and murder and theft and greed and so on, we wonder, can a God of love really be over all of this? When things don't seem to fit our definition of love, we wonder how God can really be in control. And perhaps uh, even more prevalent than these thoughts about God being a God of love in our world today, is that if God is a God of love, he ought to be a God of affirmation. A loving God would not look at me and tell me that I need to change. He would affirm me wherever I am, whoever I am. To speak of God as a God of love means that God must conform to love's principles. 
And if he does not, he cannot be a God of love. Now, by this time, you're probably seeing what John makes explicit in this passage, that God is not a God of love. He's not a God from love. But love, in fact, comes from God. Love is of God. Scripture almost, I'm telling you, the scripture almost never uses the phrase God of love. One time in the whole Bible that the phrase God of love is used in scripture, unless you're reading the message and then it's two times, (laughs) okay? One time that the phrase God of love is used in all scripture almost never uses it. What does it say? Oftentimes, the love of God. Because God does not follow a predetermined set of principles called love. Love comes from him. And apart from him, there's no such thing as love. Any true concept of love flows out of God. It flows out of his character. Love emanates from him and him only. Nothing else is pure love except God. Just like the sun cannot help but radiate heat, God, who is love himself, cannot but radiate love. How is it that love comes from God? Well, it's as John says twice, because God is love. In his book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer calls love a revelation of God's own inner being. But you see, God does not, God's love does not exist in a vacuum. Packer goes on to say that God is love is not the complete truth about God as far as the Bible is concerned. At the beginning of 1 John, we also read what? That God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. It means that he has no sin in him, and sin cannot survive in his holy presence. So God's love is a holy kind of love. God's love is not the complete truth about God as far as the Bible is concerned, but then Packer goes on later to say that it is the complete truth about God as far as the Christian is concerned. It is the truth about God as far as the Christian is concerned. Packer's not saying that we should not care about what the Bible says since we have the love of God. But as Christians, we can see that God's love is expressed in everything that he does. Everything that God does is expression of his love. Just like you, if you're a parent, almost everything you do is an expression of your parenthood, even if you're not parenting your children. You get up and go to work every day. Why? You've got to put food on the table to do what? Feed your children. Everything you do in life when you become a parent becomes an expression of your parenthood, and that's how God's love is. Everything he does is an expression of God's love. So what is the greatest expression of God's love? Let's, let's move on from there to talk about God's nature, to talk about his gift of love, from God's nature of love to, to his gift of love. John says that God's love was made manifest, which is a churchy way of saying he, it, it was made known. I really don't know why modern translations use the word manifest, like, but whatever, made manifest, made known, okay? That's what it means. God showed it to us. He displayed it. How did he do it? He says this in verse 9, And this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. What was God's ultimate display of love? It was a gift, something that he gave to his people under no compulsion 
On the one hand, he gave it with no expectation of return. He sent his son without requiring anything of his people because his people had nothing that they could contribute for their own salvation. They had not loved him, but he loved them. On the other hand, there was sort of a gift exchange. God in Christ received justice while his people received mercy. God's wrath against sin was turned away from his people and upon his own son. He gave his own life in exchange for the life of you and me, for his people. And this is one of the most critically overlooked aspects of God's love. It's not a sappy kind of love that just diffuses affirmation upon people who despise his righteousness. We love, we love to turn Jesus' words onto himself, don't we? We love to say to Jesus, if love me, you will keep my commandments. That's what we love to say to Jesus. You love me for who I am, not in spite of who I am. If you love me, you will not do mean things like allow things to happen in the world that I don't like. Packer, again, notes that sentimental ideas of his love as an indulgent, benevolent softness, divorced from moral standards and concerns, must be ruled out. Instead, God's gift of love takes justice and righteousness by the hand. And where do they walk? His justice and righteousness walk hand in hand with his love. Where? To the cross, brothers and sisters. They don't contradict one another. They're inseparable from one another. In Psalm 89, 14, the psalmist says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. All of these, righteousness, justiceness, that is the light of God that shines in the darkness, and mercy and faithfulness, that is the love of God for his people, they're essential to who he is. And they motivate the gift that he gives us. What is the result? Well, there are actually many results. Uh, Kelly Capick, he's a professor at Covenant College, points out in his book that God who gives, that the gift of the Son is like a multifaceted jewel. Some of you have purchased jewels in your life if you've ever held a, a loose diamond. And, and if, you, if you've ever had to shop for a diamond and you, you're the kind of person who does research, you find out that there's way more about diamonds than you ever wanted to know. And then the diamond companies scare you into, they, they inform you of everything and then tell you that the one that you're buying is not actually good enough, right? Because there are so many aspects to a diamond. But when you hold a very clear diamond next to one that is not so clear, you see why in some ways there are all of these uh, distinctions among diamonds. And the way that it's cut changes how it shines. And Capic says that that's how the gift of God's love works, that as you turn through the pages of Scripture, God's love shines and sparkles in different ways. It is a gift of substitution because Jesus gives his life in our place. It's a gift of redemption because Jesus gives his life to purchase us for God. It's a gift of reconciliation because Jesus gives his life to make peace between God and humanity. It's a gift of propitiation because Jesus gives his life to turn away the wrath of God. The gift of justi- it's a gift of justification because Jesus gives his life that we might be declared right before God. It's a gift of sacrifice because Jesus gives his life to purify us 
before God. And it's a gift of victory because Jesus gives his life to defeat his and our enemies. And what is the result? The result is that because of the gift that he gives, we become his people. We who once were far off are brought near. We're the objects of his love. He sets his sight on us. But he doesn't just stop there. His love does not stop expressing itself in the sending of his son as a sacrifice for our sin. But he sent his son that we might live through him, he says in verse 9. He transforms us from being passive recipients of his love to active participants. He gives us his son, but he also gives us his spirit. He gives us his son and his spirit, John says in verse 13. We're born in him. We're brought from death to life. The further result is that our lives become a proclamation of his love. We testify, that is, that we speak aloud as witnesses that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. He says in verse 14. And we don't just know about him, but we know him intimately. Because... He has, we have been known by him because he has known us. And we abide in him. That is that we we make our home with him because he has made his home in us. Some of us don't necessarily have this assurance, do we, all the time. I do not have this assurance all the time. And I I know I'm not the only one. And and sometimes we ask ourselves, am I abiding in Christ today? It's not a bad question to ask. And what we mean by that is, am I living my life in, in gratitude and recognition of the great gift that he's given in his son and in his spirit? But John doesn't actually complicate things by asking questions like that. Am I, am I doing the right things in order to abide in him? John isn't always second-guessing our commitment and faithfulness. He simply says that whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. Harkens back to the verses that Luke preached on last week. Assurance that God lives in you and you in him does not come from endlessly striving and questioning our own motivations and actions and wondering if we've ever done enough to prove our allegiance to God's household. God is not a fraternity that requires you to jump through all kinds of intoxicated hoops in order to prove your allegiance to him. He simply says that whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God abides in him. This is how we've come to know and believe the love that God has for us, he says in verses 15 and 16, simply by believing in the son. But if you're like me, you might be asking yourself, Now, okay, so what should I do? What should I do? I want to bring us back now to the beginning of the passage. These first words of the passage that are are, repeated throughout, they're at the beginning and the end, and they recur throughout as a refrain. Beloved, let us love one another. The very nature of God as love and the gift of his son that covered our sins and brought us to life through the power of his Holy Spirit has one very real implication, that we should love one another. 
The very nature of God as love and the gift of his son that covered our sins is the sentence I just read. In fact, (laughs) this is one of the two great commandments that Jesus gave, isn't it? That we should love one another, love God, love other people. You hear it, church, churches make that one of their slogans so often. Well, what do we do here? We, we love God and we love people. That's, uh, it's in the Gospels, it's in Matthew 22. It's what Jesus said we ought to do. They're, they're, these words are given as a charge or as a command in John, but it's also an encouragement. John calls his friends beloved. And it's our task to make our belovedness known to one another. That you are beloved by God. And you may not believe it today. And the person sitting next to you may not believe it today. So what is your task? To make sure that they know it. (laughs) So that they can be assured by it. Why does John keep repeating this over and over again? Maybe it's because it's very, very important. Maybe it's because it's a hard thing to do all the time. Maybe he's drawing attention to the nature of our own love for one another. Earlier when we talked about, I was talking about animals acting according to their nature. I wasn't just comparing God to a crocodile. Even though that's kind of a cool thing to do, I guess. But God is, because God is love, he must do loving things. But unlike a crocodile who acts purely on instinct, that is not how God acts out of his nature. His love is a volitional love, not just instinctual love. A crocodile sets his sight on any wildebeest that comes to to the water without discretion. As long as it's within striking distance, he will eat it. But when God loves, he loves in a very specific way. He loves you, personally. He loves you and he loves me, specifically. He calls us by name. And he acts as an outflow of his character out of his nature, but he does it because he wants to do it. He doesn't doesn't love us, brothers and sisters. He doesn't love us reluctantly. He doesn't love us out of compulsion or because it's his instinct. He loves us because out of his nature, he wants to love us. And if that's how he loves us, how are we supposed to love The answer is the same. Real Christian love is not some difficult thing that we have to force ourselves to do against our nature. It's an an expression of a changed nature. It's an expression of a new birth. There's a progression in the Christian life, isn't there, when it comes to many things, but specifically when it comes to loving one another. When we start off before we're in Christ, loving one another is contrary to our nature. There's no such thing as sacrificial love that does not have an ulterior motive. Of course, there are sacrificial acts of love. I'm not denying that, that that a parent who is not a believer can love their children sacrificially. That, That sacrificial acts of love can't exist. But when we love prior to Christ, we love out of some other motive than our nature. It might just be that we get a really good feeling when we do something right. That we, um, But loving like Christ love, it's, it's actually contrary to our nature. And I think that when you spend enough time in church, even if you're not a believer, you can learn how you're supposed to act. 
You might learn that you're supposed to volunteer for this thing or that thing when, the, when a sheet goes around or when you're told to sign up online. Perhaps you even do these things without thinking about them so that loving others becomes sort of second nature. The things that you're supposed to do in service for one another, it becomes second nature to you when you've been in church long enough. Um, usually what we mean by second nature is this, that, that we've done something often enough that we no longer have to think about doing it. It comes naturally. But it's still a learned behavior. It's still a learned behavior. We talk about things being like riding a bike when we talk about them being second nature. But if, if you have ever ridden a bike and then not ridden a bike for a long time and then gotten back on one, you realize that it's actually harder to keep balance if you don't keep practicing. Second nature is something that must be repeated over and over again. But it remains in a category of learned behavior. But what John is talking about is not learned behavior only. He's not just talking about knowing what the right thing to do is and doing it. He's talking about having a changed nature that causes you to act out of the character of your being. Not just learning a certain set of behaviors that are particular to church, but giving of yourself because you are being conformed to the image of the one who gave himself. That's what God did when he gave his son and his spirit. He did not just give his son and his spirit. He gave himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And if we are born of God, we will love as God loves. If God is is love in a certain respect, the more we abide in love, the more too we must become love. I'm not saying that we become God with a capital G. I'm not even saying that we become gods with a small g. What I am saying is that we must become what Peter calls, Peter says this in 2 Peter, we must become partakers of the divine nature. Paul says in Romans 8 that we must be conformed to the image of the Son. See, the more we become like Christ, the more we become love in a certain sense, which means that for us, love moves from being against our nature to second nature to first nature, part of our nature, the more we're conformed to his image. And you might still be asking yourself, well, what does it mean, though? Are there specific things that I ought to be doing? What does it look like for a particular person in my life who I'm struggling to love? What does it mean to show them first nature love if I don't feel like loving them? Well, John gives us surprisingly little specific application. And it's for our benefit. He doesn't spend a lot of time saying what loving one another actually means. He doesn't spend a lot of time in this passage talking about taking care of widows and orphans or taking care of the poor. He doesn't say anything about visiting the sick or helping those who are in need. He doesn't talk about meal trains or prayer meetings. He doesn't say that we should take one out, uh, that we should just take one another out for coffee. He doesn't do any of that. He, He doesn't give us single specific things that we should do. The only thing he does is talk about what God did. That's what he does. What did God do? He showed his love by giving the gifts of his son and spirit, but he gave himself, as we said before. And that's the glaring implication, is that if you're wondering what you should do, you have to start by giving yourself. It's the hardest thing to do. It's the hardest thing to do, to lay down your life like Christ laid down his life. 
When Jesus said that there's no greater love than, one, than uh, that one should lay down his life for his friends in, in John's gospel, he was not merely foreshadowing what he would do, but he was showing us the image that we have to be conformed to. When he laid down his life on the cross, his words to his disciples that they should take up their crosses and follow him took on a new meaning. Not just being a martyr, but laying down your life for other people. That's what it means because that's what God did for us in Christ. We give our lives as a gift because he gave his life as a gift, brothers and sisters. Amen. Let's pray.